Hello and welcome back to Porcelain Peak, the strange and scary podcast that covers everything from horror to sci-fi and all the true crime stuff in between. I am one of your hosts, Anthony, and as always, I am joined by John. What up? How's it going, man? It's going pretty good. We are definitely hopping onto that bandwagon. (laughs) Yes, that true crime bandwagon and a much wanted turn of events from the last month. Not that I didn't enjoy doing the Avengers April, but I'm ready to get back into some horror related stuff. We'll call it murder may murder. May. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we are going to be doing a look into a specific serial killer. I haven't told you who it's going to be yet. So keep it a little bit of a mystery until we get to that point. But before we dive into that, we're going to do some news news. In some sci-fi news, it looks like Colin Farrell is attached to a movie that is being called the sci-fi space version of Lord of the Flies. So it's going to be him and 30 kids on a multi-generational space trip that kind of descends into chaos and breaks up into a sort of Lord of the Flies aspect, which sounds pretty cool. It sounds like the Magic School Bus, only like serious sci-fi and maybe even a little horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that sounds like we're going to get at least a tiny bit of horror attached to that. So I would be interested to see how that develops. Um, along those lines, sci-fi and horror, we are getting a Terminator musical that is supposed to be a sort of homage to terminator 1 and terminator 2 and it's off broadway so it's not going to be this giant production but from the small trailer that we saw it looks pretty cool it, it, it looks a little whack <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna get drunk and we're gonna fucking laugh about it but i definitely definitely see the value in it also there's a movie that's kind of been floating around that they've been trying to find a good home for called death house it has a who's who of horror icons. You know, you've got Kane, you know, uh, Jason up in the mix. And then it also has... Sid Haig, Captain Spaulding. Uh, Tony Todd. Tony Todd, Mr. Candyman himself. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a, it's a, it's a big list of people. The trailer looks super terrible, uh, but it's coming to Netflix. It's supposed to be here on the 5th. I definitely want to check it out just to see what they do, because, I mean, it's not very often that Kane gets speaking lines. Uh, so like i want to see what what his delivery and everything is like it doesn't look great but i mean i'm sure i'll enjoy it maybe it's something we'll do for the show cheesy's right up our alley so yeah (laughs) it looks very cheesy well and then i think in the biggest piece of news and this is no shock to anybody uh endgame is fucking destroying at the box office currently sitting as time of recording we're currently sitting at somewhere around 1.48 billion so it's almost a, a billion and a half and it's only been like five days. We're definitely probably going to breach the 1.5 by the end of the day that we're recording this. I'm saying that we're probably going to be somewhere close to 1.8 by the time this episode releases. And that's no surprise there. I'll be interested to see how much that keeps going, especially, I mean, this summer is going to be all about Disney, really, yeah. because they got Spider-Man coming out and Toy Story's coming out and Lion already King. Had Dumbo and Lion King. And I mean, they're making so much money. It's fucking ridiculous. All right, so that's going to be it for news this week, which means we are going to dive into some of that trivia. Trivia. Here's how we play. I ask a question. If you get it right, Steve lives. Come on, it'll be fun. 
Oh, man. All right, John. We're going to start off with the monster category, as always, in a difficult opener. Who directed The Birds from 1968? <laughs> uh, do you know? That would be Alfred Hitchcock. That is the, the cock. <laughs> the cock. Uh, what, uh, that's how we're referring to him now. Oh, God. I really hope that we're not, but I think we're going to. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, uh, in just as difficult a question, what actor portrayed Sheriff Eben uh, Olsen in 30 Days of Night? Josh Hartthrob. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I like to call him. As I would say, we, we know this is like your, your, like your lightweight secret favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Gore and disturbing. In the Human Centipede first sequence from 2009, what is the name of the villainous surgeon who devises and performs the procedure? Oh, shit. I've only seen this once. It's not a very good film. I think everybody only sees it once. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even like it was like because it was unsettling. It's just not a very good movie. <laughs> uh, Dr. Charles Fuck. I don't know. <laughs> it is Dr. Joseph Heiter. All right. Does protagonist Sherry Carson survive in The Wizard of Gore from 1970? Yes. Yes. All right. Cool. Yeah, so you, had a yes. 50, you had a 50-50. It didn't even explain it. It just says yes. <laughs> yes, she did. She's the final girl. Moving on, psychological. What are the four requirements for the intended sacrifice in The Wicker Man from 1973? Female, virgin, innocence, masks? I don't know. You got one out of the four. Is it virgin. female or virgin? So the other three are willing, king-like, and a fool. I guess we're out. There's no way we're fools. <laughs> Never. All right. What is the nickname Martin Matthias is given by the disc jockey in Martin from 1978? Marty. <laughs> Close. It was the count. <laughs> Nailed it. All right, fuck. Well, I had a strong lead, so whatever. Paranormal. In The Exorcism of Emily Rose from 2005, what is the name of the priest on trial? Father Charles Fuck. <laughs> you can't just keep saying that. <laughs> it is Father Moore. Uh, what is the name of the son of protagonist Arthur Kipps in The Woman in Black? Harry. Joseph. All right. Well, moving on to this round that's tanking. This is going to be killer. How many masked strangers attack the couple in The Strangers from 2008? I'm going to go with three. That is correct, sir. Yeah. Dope. What real-life magician played the magician in Terror Train from 1980? David Copperfield. It is David Copperfield. Oh, sick. That's some straight-up David Copperfield <laughs> shit. <laughs> All right. International Eyes Without a Face from 1960 was filmed in what type of monochromatic form? Uh, is that going to be black and white? It is going to be black and white. If only the answer wasn't in the title. <laughs> in Le Diabolicus. In 1955, what position does victim Michael hold at the all-boys boarding school? Dean. I'm going to give it to you for the win. It's headmaster, but Dean would, is the same shit. But yeah, it's a 4-3 to three win for you, man. Nice. Hey! <laughs> you guys didn't see that one. Uh, Toss it right into his mitts. His greasy paws. All right, well, that's going to conclude that trivia round. If you loved that news and that crazy zany trivia, then go ahead and shoot over to that subscribe button. Uh, we can pull the veil back a little bit. Yes. So we're talking about 
one of the most surprisingly influential serial killers, and that that's a tumultuous title for this particular person, but one of the most iconic serial killers as far as looking at the body of works that were created around this character's archetype. Well, character, terrible person, Ed Gein. So Ed Gein was born in the early 1900s in 1906. He was born second, so he had a, an older brother, an alcoholic father, and a very, very controlling mother. So he spent the first large portion of his life dealing with his mother, like, hating his father for being an alcoholic and a womanizer and lazy and under her thumb constantly, constantly just getting like, punished for stuff that he didn't really do, being, like, told that all women are terrible whores and that they're going to give him diseases and that they're going to prevent him from going to heaven. And she would read all of the worst parts of the Old Testament, all of the really violent, retro, you know, retribution-laden parts of the Old Testament to try to keep her children from going out and trying to live normal lives. And she would work that into her punishments. And so he went his life never like, ever touching a woman, pretty much. If you know anything about true crime or any serial killers, it's always the parentage where you start, typically. There are some people who are just born sociopaths, and that's fine. There are also a lot of cases where... Their early life is what causes all of the turmoil. Like it prevents them from being able to just go live a normal life and function in society. At the time, too, I guess when he was upcoming and starting to commit these crimes, they didn't really have the term serial killer yet, right? Yeah. We could get to see that in a lot of stuff that's come out recently, like Mindhunter movie, you know, like, or a show. Uh, like yeah, yeah, show yeah, yeah. That came out and shows like the rise of the term serial killer. And so this is even before that. He spent the majority of his life living on a very secluded farm in Wisconsin. They had this large piece of land and him and his brother would farm it because their dad, their dad passed while he was, I think, in his teens. From there, it was just him going to school, coming home, being punished by his mother and then being read these terrible stories and told these terrible things from the Bible, basically, basically being told full blown any sin you commit is something that you could die and go to hell for and that was the only interaction he got with people outside of going to school and being this quiet sheltered person and as we've seen several times since then with people like jeffrey dahmer and ted bundy there are so many different ways you can go about this but typically the ed gein jeffrey dahmer route where you're really really quiet and people don't pay attention to you kind of a deal is more of the typical route when it comes to somebody who does these weird experimental things I was reading, too, that she was verbally abusive toward him, too. Oh, yeah. Well, and they, like I said, they also imply, like, physical abuse as well. Beat, beaten with reeds, belts, you know, the, the typical stuff. I think it's interesting, too, because we're going to see how they used this later in the movies. But he idolized her, even though she was kind of shitty to him. And we're definitely going to see that in at least one of, yeah, one of the two. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say at least two. So from there, he's going about living his life. There's a fire at their farm. He's He has spent his entire life living with his mom. Hasn't moved off of the farm. He refuses to. His brother is coming back and still working on the farm, you know, doing that sort of stuff. But he has moved on with his life. He's trying to move out. He has this lady all lined up. She's a divorcee. She has kids. And he's trying to live his life and everything. And there's a fire that takes place. They're doing like regulated burning of certain crops. The burn gets out of control, so they aren't able to keep control of it. And they 
somehow in the process, once everything is all said and done, he reports his brother missing. And they find him, and he's face down, dead. They said that he had some kind of an asphyxiation-related heart attack. They reported on it, but didn't actually use any of it to move forward with a case or anything like this, but that he had uh, bruises all over the back of his head. So there's a potential that Edgine killed him. I was reading, too, that <clears throat> he was reported missing, but then when the police got there, Ed took him straight to the body. <laughs> this, like, totally harkens back to Old Testament stuff in the Bible. Like, he tried to leave, so he basically reenacted the the process from Cain and Abel and just fucking murked him. That's a very popular theory. It's not necessarily 100% confirmed or the truth. He never admitted to it during his life, but... There is always a potential that that may have taken place. Right, and the circumstances are pretty mysterious. Yes. Overall, it was ruled to be an accident. I think that a case could be made that that might have been his first victim. Because that, that's pretty strange that he would have bruises and suddenly be burned and then know where the body's at. Exactly, exactly yeah. While also saying that he's missing. So after this takes place, it's still kind of business as usual for him, but for his mother, who is still at this time kicking, she is pretty heavily affected by this. And she continues to take it out even further on Ed, you know, saying that it should have been him and he's not contributing to anything. that He's just like his father and then continuing to berate him. And she ends up having two strokes. One of them, they say, was related to the shock of losing a, a child. And the other one was just, you know, as you continue along that path, they didn't really have the type of medicine available to them to prevent a second type of episode from happening. She succumbs to the second one, her health deteriorates, and she passes away. And so he's, at this point in time, 39 years old, and he's ready to live the bachelor life all by himself <laughs> at the farm. So he boards up all of the rooms that had anything to do with her in the house keeps all those rooms super pristine in their original condition, boards those places up, and then goes about trying to figure out how to how to live his life now. Almost like a shrine to her in a way, right? Yes. And so what he ends up doing is he kind of starts off by buying all of these weird books and super visceral violent things from the war. Because, I mean, this is around 1945, so this is, you know, peak of World War II. So he's getting all of these crazy pictures of all this massacre from war and all this other crazy stuff. And it starts, I guess, giving him ideas. Um, and eventually he starts grave robbing in his spare time. So he chooses to go find the graves of, of ladies that have been just put in the ground but not covered over yet. And so he'll sneak in to the cemetery and steal the bodies or steal parts of the bodies. Uh, and from there, he uses tools that was left to him by his dad in order to tan the now human leather uh, and turn it into furniture and lampshades and clothing, uh, things to eat from, like all this crazy stuff. I mean, like he's just like turning masks. this into like, yeah, like turning it into just like a butcher shop. Which we're going to see in, again, one of the movies. Exactly. Masks is very important. He's just going about about his his new creepy life. Of being a grave robber and turning those things into weird tchotchkes and and crazy stuff. Eventually, he he doesn't really admit to it as like a straightforward, like he sought out to do something and did it. 
I think up until he died, he still claimed that one of them he didn't even know happened and was an accident and then didn't claim to know anything about the other one, even though he had the body from it. But he ends up killing a shop owner who was a woman who was about his mother's age. Yeah, Bernice Warden. Kills her, takes her back to the house and basically like field dresses her, like flips her upside down, decapitates her, cuts her body open so that way all the blood will drain out so that way he can, you know, do what he wants with it and then there was another woman as well so then the other woman that they discovered on his property is mary hogan yeah who was a woman i believe who had been reported missing but didn't have any ties to him at all a tavern operator and she yeah. disappeared in 54 but also was a woman who was very similar age to his mother when she passed like i said and that all kind of points back to him having this weird connection to her he claims that he never uh never touched any of the bodies sexually, but he's also flip like he also had flip-flopped on that on occasion, so they it's very heavily implied that he was forceful with these bodies as well. But like I said, the crazy things that he did, he would keep vulvas around and treat them like stress balls. Oh. Or he would like put he would like put them in women's underwear and wear them. That's gonna come up too. It's yeah. definitely part of one of the movies. Yeah. And so you might be able to discern what some of these movies are that yeah. were influenced by this guy. So he goes to trial <clears throat> and he admits to killing two women because they resembled his mother, but then he pled not guilty during his initial trial for reasons of insanity. And for a long time, he was, uh, they deemed he was un unfit for trial. And so they made him go to psychiatric institutions. Which So he, he ended up spending the rest of his life in a particular mental hospital. Yeah, so then it, when I was reading it said that in 68, they deemed that he was able to go on trial and he was found guilty of killing Warden, the first victim that we had talked about, for financial reasons. They didn't try him for Mary. They didn't try her for her. Or for all of the grave robbing as well, which he admitted to uh, in an earlier court and actually took them to three of the graves because he claimed to have raved a total of, raided a total of nine. Based on the amount of things he had in his house, the masks, the furniture, all of the crazy stuff that he had, uh, it would have had to have been a significant number larger than that. Even the term serial killer isn't necessarily fit, yeah. right? Because he's only killed that we know of two victims. Yes. And so I guess by the standard of a serial killer, I don't think that that meets the, number the is criteria. Three. Yeah, the yeah. number is three. And yeah, like you were saying, he, he spent the rest of his life after the trial in a mental hospital and he was there until he died in yeah. 1984. Yeah. <laughs> well, he died from uh, cancer, just some form of complications due to, I think it was multiple types of cancer. As far as his life is concerned, like I said, he spent half of it on the farm and half of it in a mental institution. There are so many parallels you can draw to different, different horror movies, especially like iconic horror movies. So I think that... This case is a very specific instance, and its influences on horror are part of the reasons why pop culture nowadays is so invested in like the true crime or serial killer format. The reason why shit like Cold Case Files, Forensic Files, you know those those types of shows, and podcasts like My Favorite Murder and Last Podcast on the Left, stuff like that. The reason why those are so popular is because of the influence on popular culture and the way that movies that came out after stuff Ed Gein influenced became so visceral and had so much more of a realism to pull from. It made people a little desensitized to things. 
those stories are inherently interesting in certain ways, but it was more of a niche thing, you know, in the seventies and eighties. Now that those things have had their effect, it's way more of a widespread thing, especially with something like the internet to back those things. People can study and look up things constantly and the connections you can draw between things are massive. Toby Hooper, um, who we'll talk about it a little bit later, didn't even realize some of the influences that he had from his childhood that pushed him in certain directions with some of his films. We'll talk about that in specifics here in a few minutes when we kind of reveal where those connections lie <laughs> from Ed Gein. I think it's interesting, too, <clears throat> that the, there's this shift, right? So with Ed and the movies that he inspired, they were movies inspired by him. So he mm. has influence on these movies, but they're not about him. Yes. And now I feel like we get movies that are about the serial killers. Like we have my friend Dahmer, right? Mm. And I think Zac Efron's in a Bundy movie that's coming yes. out soon. And then we have the Zodiac, that great movie yeah. that that Fincher made come out. And these are just movies about the killer mm-hmm. and it's not inspired by it. Well, you know, loosely inspired because of the source material and all that, but they're not tangents. These are about the specific killer and killings. And I think that shift is interesting. Well, and like we have like huge, like pop culture events, like last year they did an entire series on trying to connect Jack the Ripper and HH H. Holmes. Like these right. huge, like these huge, like tent poles that televisions are television shows are putting themselves behind actually digging in and talking about and also sometimes even with with newer killings to serial killers like that shit's kind of scary like that's part of the reason why there's been a shift over the last i'd say like 30 or 40 years in horror you know where some portions are moving towards this hyper realism because it's something that can be done you know and those stories in and of themselves are terrifying they're not they don't need any sprucing they don't need any hollywood magic they just need to be told and they're scary as shit yeah, like it's way more realistic and it's way more feasible than you know than like your typical slasher movie where you're dealing with someone who can you know who can withstand you know bullets and being stabbed and come back and you know beat beat you running walking you know <laughs> all the typical uh horror rules speaking of Kane Hodder yeah <laughs> Why do you think that we as a culture are so into serial killers and this true crime thing? I mean, cause there's even podcasts like Monster that covers Atlanta Monster and season two covers Zodiac. And then we have shows like Serial yeah. where they cover these killers and these like mysterious events that happen. Why do you think that we are into that? Do you think part of it could be making a movie or making some kind of art form more or less helps desensitize us to that? So you know, the idea of someone killing, we see it on film. Now we're a little bit less scared and a little bit worried, less worried about that happening. I think it's, I don't, for me, it's not personally about that. I think that for what I've seen in a lot of situations is like the actual psychology behind why someone becomes a serial killer is inherently interesting. Like I said, it's grotesque and it's very hard to watch or listen to, but it's still interesting. It's still enticing. It's like, it's like, it's, it's interesting for the same reason why you can't turn away from a train wreck. (laughs) Like it's, you kind of see all these pieces all fall together when you sit there and you talk about like a famous, a famous serial killer, like a Ted Bundy, or, you know, you watch their, watch their life unfold and it pushes them into this direction of, 
you know, doing these crazy, disgusting things to people. A lot of the time you can almost count it down. Like, oh, these things happen in their childhood. They're for sure going to do terrible things in their adulthood. Almost like creating a character out of a real person and doing a character study because people love to do character studies. I mean, we've we've made several episodes of podcasts about them. <laughs> <laughs> like being able to break down the psychology behind the reasons why someone does the things that they do is just inherently magnetic. Like it makes you want to watch it. It's like when you smell something bad and then you smell it again. <laughs> it's like, what is that? Oh, I got to get another take. <laughs> it's like I said, it's, it's crazy, but I see why it works. Like, why do you think that there's some killers and stories that are a little bit more in the forefront and some that are more taboo? So, I mean, I'm sure there is an actual Ed Gain movie, but that's not the main focus. His has been more inspirational. We don't really tackle him, but then we get movies about Dahmer and about Bundy. And those ones are okay to talk about and okay for us to dissect. And we have a movie about Son of Sam. But then when Tarantino announced that he was going to have Charles Manson in his next movie, people freaked out. So why do you think that some are taboo more than others? I would say uh, some of it will have to do with the specifics of the cases. If things go too far in one direction or another, people might be turned off by that. A lot of people don't want to hear about people who kill kids. Yeah, um, that's I don't. <laughs> yeah, like I um, what's the really famous serial killer that that's like famous for killing like younger girls? Is it Albert Fish? Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> but there are certain things about people like Dahmer and Bundy that lend them a little more frequently to being portrayed in a pop culture way that makes sense, and it's easy to give the Hollywood treatment. Uh, kind of with Gacy too, right? Where you get this clown. Yeah. And who does Yeah, it's something that you can... That one has a gimmick. Right. Ed Gein doesn't really have a gimmick, nor does he have a really huge body of work. Watching him getting beat by his mom and then having him kill two people, like, you can't really Hollywoodize that. I mean, you can, take, s- you can take it and you can spin it and you can make it its own story and make it larger than life, which it's still really gross and it's it's a terrible thing but somebody who you know has a huge body count and who went on for a long time and who kept the police at bay or someone like Ted Bundy who is considered to be very charismatic or someone like a Charles Manson who is very charismatic like they lend themselves better to being portrayed by somebody what you were saying about seeing the upbringing kind of reminded me, and I don't know if it's directly influenced by it, but reminded me of Rob Zombie's take on Halloween. Because we get to see his Michael's abusive family relationships at the beginning of that movie and see yeah. how that develops. And then he goes into like an institution, right? And we get to see the beginning and that seed planted and how it grows and becomes what it is and turns him into a killer. Well, yeah, and it, and it's, it takes him as less of a force of nature and more of a force of lack of nurture. And... That's more real and more, like I said, it's more based out of something that's possible than it just being like, oh, this person was literally born to be a killer. That's not necessarily how life works, but you could be sure as shit in a lot of cases when things go awry in the upbringing that things probably aren't going to be, you know, all sunshine and roses when they're an adult. I think it's interesting to even just think about that, just how we're into it as a culture mm-hmm. one and like i was saying the taboo and who's not who we can look into and who we can't look into and i'll be interested to see the people's reaction 
and how visceral things get with Tarantino's new movie, The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and how much it actually shows yeah. of the Tate murders and to see the reactions for that. And then I'll, I'll be interested to see Zac Efron's portrayal of, of Bundy yeah. and how that works. So, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff around it, and I'm into it. And I think that we could probably go ahead and talk about some of the influences that right. came from Ed Gein. So we, we can do them in chronological order. It's going to be the easiest way to talk about them. The one in the middle, I think, will probably get a little more a little more talking time because it created an entire series. Well, one that is not chronological nor super influential and not a movie either is the second season of American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Heavily featured skin-made furniture. Yeah, accoutrement. <laughs> yeah, accoutrement. <laughs> yeah, and so I think that that I mean that had to be influenced either directly by this or by other things that were influenced. Right, exactly. So that being said, let's go ahead and jump into. I think there's three movies that we want to talk about. Uh, there's there's three, and then there are a couple of honorable mentions that are, would have been later in line, but I think that they're more of more of an influence by serial killers as a whole. That we can kind of talk about as well. I mean, you brought up Rob Zombie uh, and it's some of his uh, filmography. But the first one right off the bat is Psycho. Psycho has some Psycho has some huge influence from Ed Gein and from his relationship with his mother. The fact that he sets out to kill these people as her with Ed Gein, like you know, he was killing people who were like his mom, and then he would dress up as her because he idolized her so much. And, like, the fact that he kept, like, everything of her is, like, separate from him in the house. Like, those those influences are very easy to see. I mean, obviously, we don't get, like, the crazy, like, skin stuff or whatever. But I think that at that point in time, that wasn't really Hitchcock's bag either. He's not a gore kind of person. It was more about the suspense and about, like, how crazy the story is. And, you know, at the time, he couldn't really do too much. They were the first movie to show a toilet flushing on mm-hmm. screen. So I <laughs> couldn't push the limits too far. And they already did. But along those lines, and talking about, I guess, Psycho now as a series, right? So there are more than one. I don't know if viewers out there or listeners out there know that there's, I think, four of them. Yeah, there are several. And they feature, one of them features Perkins' relationship with his brother. And then also we get to see within the show in Bates Motel yeah. kind of some of those same things coming. And so we get a little bit of the background of the relationship with Norman and Norma. Mm-hmm. And I think that relates to this. It had to be pulled from that because they she is a little bit verbally abusive. Yeah. I think more loving and less well, but, I mean, sin, sin, sin. But I mean more also like loving though as well, yeah. which is like real gross. Or but... at least that's how Norman sees it. So I think that I mean I think that's worth mentioning mm-hmm. that you get to see that. So there is kind of you know it branches more. So yes, Psycho was the foundation of it, but there's a lot that leads into the other films as well. Yeah, in the series. What's next? So next on the list is going to be, in my opinion, the big one. It is one of my favorite movies of all time, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, that came out in the 70s. Uh, so this was long after all that had taken place, and so a little bit of backstory on this. Toby Hooper was on a trip when he was very young. He was about five or six years old in Wisconsin, and he actually visited the Gein Ranch. Oh, shit. So he was told stories about what happened, about like the things made of human skin and all this crazy stuff, and he put it out of his memory. It was so traumatizing to him that he completely 
put it into the ether of his childhood. And so those memories were resurfaced later in his life, but this was after he'd already come up with the idea for Texas Chainsaw Massacre and they'd already released it. So he like copped to it later and was like, I completely even forgot that this took place, that I went here and that I saw these things. He created this entire story that so heavily influenced the fact that Leatherface is so influenced by his family um, that he almost doesn't really think for himself. The fact that he has all of the things made from skin and bones and that he has the masks and the way that he dispatches enemies by, you know, like, like hanging them up and treating them like animals. It's, it's so heavily influenced by Gein. They carry this out through an entire series, an entire franchise that still has movies that come out today. I mean, they're less mentionable than the first three. The original trilogy of those movies, I feel, are are great, and they stand alone on their own time. But, like I said, the influences from Gein are so heavily visible. Then you get to see influences from that on other films. So you can go from there to something like House of a Thousand Corpses, mm-hmm. which is very much a Rob Zombie, more or less, version of... Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, and you also get a little bit of Gacy in there that, as well with Captain Spaulding. Like, I <laughs> mean, right. like the end game equivalent of serial killers. Like, it's <laughs> like it's like a love letter to people who love true crime and serial killer shit. And that's why I feel why I really enjoyed that pair of films. Uh, There's soon to be three. Yeah, they they are my favorite of his works by a by a mile. Oh, Devil's Rejects is probably the best thing he's done. Yeah. It's a fantastic film. I'll argue anybody with that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So then before we get into probably the most famous mm-hmm. of these movies, and that's pretty loose because Texas Chainsaw and Psycho are very famous movies. We'll do a couple of the honorable mentions. So there's a movie called Deranged Confessions of a Necrophile. So that one also came out in 74 with Texas. And that was heavily based on Ed, on Ed Gain. I'll give you a brief description. A deranged rural farmer becomes a grave robber and murderer after the death of his possessive mother, whom he keeps her corpse, among others, as his companions in his decaying farmhouse. I mean, that's literally, the, <laughs> literally <laughs> I mean, Ed They could have just called that yeah. one Ed Gain. And then the other one I'll mention came out a couple years later called Motel Hell in 1980. And that's a farmer kidnaps unsuspecting travelers and is burying them in his garden. So... That's a pretty loose adaptation. That's almost closer to something along the lines of like a mashup of him and H.H. Holmes, where it kind of has like this like big place where people come to and then he just like kills the ones he wants or whatever. But yeah, I think that the biggest one, though, and it's the one that's come out the most recently, and it is also the most widely recognized by the film world in general is Silence of the Lambs. What? <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, Buffalo Bill is a huge, a huge comparison point to Ed Gein. Just the skin being his thing, you know. The connections to it are a little, a little looser than they are in any other instance. Like I said, you have these huge tent poles of what Ed Gein's life was pulled for Psycho and for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, but for this one, it's a little more subtle because, I mean, we're... We have so many things in play in a movie like Silence of the Lambs. You have, you know, you're dealing with with Clarice and her trying to, you know, figure everything out, trying to use her connection to Hannibal to try to get to this guy. And I feel like to an extent, Buffalo Bill almost falls off to the side. Yeah. Because when people think of that movie, the first thing they think of is Hannibal. Yeah. And I and almost with that whole series, really, that, that people think, oh, Hannibal, Hannibal, Hannibal. 
but really the focus of that movie is about um, catching Buffalo Bill. And so I think it's easy to miss those those comparison points. Yeah. Between him and Gein. Buffalo Bill not only has these similarities to Gein with like like I said with the skin and everything, but he also has similarities to other famous uh serial killers. Like he would use similar tactics to what Ted Bundy would use in order to try to capture people. He would pretend to be injured or pretend to be like downtrodden. And then when people would, would tr- like come closer to try to help, he would capture them. And then he would bury them in a hole. That was, an- that was another uh, tactic that was used by a different serial killer, Gary uh, Heidnick. And so he would bury them in these holes and then would like use those holes to keep them alive for as long as he needed to and torture them, essentially. But yeah, so like I said, the comparisons to Ed Gein specifically are a little looser, but he is definitely one of the many things used to make the cocktail that is Buffalo Bill. And again, that's one of those things where it almost was a little bit too taboo to touch on. So they were like, hey, how can we tell the story in weird shit that these real life psychopaths did Mm -hmm. in a way to get it to the general public? And I think that that worked. You know, you get this amalgamation of all these different killers like Gein and Bundy and Hendrick, Heidnick, Heidnick, and and it works and it's even it's terrifying, and it, to an extent you know. But I would, I mean, I would love to see a really good straight adaptation of something like Ed Gein, mm-hmm. maybe like a mini series or a short movie or something like that because they can do it. I mean, they've done movies with less. So I think I think they've tried. Uh, there have been a couple of attempts. Um, They're always real cheesy, though. Yeah. Cause he had he had a bunch of like really really bizarre like nicknames. They called him like uh, I don't remember what county it was, but they they called him like the butcher and all these other crazy names that you know they always got to come up with like a weird name to put in in the headlines. It can't just be Ed Gein serial killer. It's got to be Ed Gein the butcher of whatever planes or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I like I said I I can definitely see the influences that he's had across the medium uh, and those movies themselves are influential to so many others. I mean, you can you can talk for days about the branches that come off a of psycho. I mean, I think a case could be made that Ed Gein is the biggest influence on the horror genre pretty, that there is. You know what I mean? Pretty damn close. If he yeah. influenced those, even just those three, and like you were saying, the branches from that, like his his influence is unattained. Like it's unimaginable how yeah. far it really goes, how deep it really is. The roots of it are yeah. everywhere. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for our discussion on Ed Gein. If there's anything that you want to share that we missed about him or about other movies that influenced by him directly, then feel free to let us know. You can reach out to us um, by email. That's going to be at porcelainpeak at gmail.com. You can hit us up on our website. It's going to be porcelainpeak.com. Or you can go to any of our social medias. That's Facebook, Twitter, mostly Instagram. And that's going to be at Porcelain Peak on all three of those. Yeah, and if you want to hear more things like this or have us talk more about serial killers that have influenced the genre or, you know, about overarching uh, influences on the the genre in general. Like um, we love talking about like the weird, obscure things that make all of our favorite things tick. Um, (laughs) Yeah. This was actually a fan suggestion. John and I had discussed it at the beginning of the podcast when we were brainstorming ideas for episodes. And recently a a fan reached out and was like, Hey, can you guys do more of a true crime serial killer dive into? So this was a shout out to that. Yeah. And and I think if we were to do something like this in the future, we'd probably pull somebody who has a little bit of a, a farther reach, uh, you know, a higher body count, something where we could actually dig in and actually get some real content. I mean, because with with Ed Gein, he like I said, he is only a serial killer because he's put in in a, like a high regard 
in the community, but for the most part, he didn't do a whole lot. I mean, he he lived a, a very secluded and sheltered life, and he didn't talk much about it. But you know, the things that he did talk about are are creepy and terrifying, and they influenced so many things in this genre of movies that we love. But other than that, I think that's going to wrap us up for this week. As always, thank you guys for listening and don't forget to hit that subscribe button and please rate, review, and share so we can keep this bad boy rolling. Yeah, keep it creepy. A Hyperforge Alpha Network production.